This is The Educated Home Buyer with Jeb Smith and Josh Lewis. Well, home prices just jumped 5.1% year over year, Josh, setting a record high for January. But that's not really why we're here. We're here to talk about the economy. We're here to talk about the housing market and how that might impact you as a buyer, seller, or investor out there in the real estate market. Josh, welcome back. We're having a little fun here before the show. You know, bought some new... uh, technology that doesn't work it's fantastic just having a good old time i i appreciate that you tried with the technology but apparently it is beyond you jeb by the way is a computer science major so you would think a usb keyboard extension would be a pretty easy piece of hardware but apparently mapping that out is beyond a early 2000s computer science major exactly a lot has changed since then (laughs) A lot, uh, including myself. Uh, But, you know, every week we like to start with talking about what is going on. We look at some charts and that's where we're going to start tonight. Uh, But I do want to talk about the podcast for a moment. So we're streaming here on my channel, Jeb Smith, and we're also streaming on the Educated Homebuyer channel, which is also a podcast that you can listen to on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. So depending on where you are, you might not be able to see what we're going to talk about. Those charts will be linked in the description of the podcast as you're watching it, which we put this out on the podcast on Friday. So for those of you who want to listen again, you didn't get it right the first time, you missed something, you can go back and watch it. It'll also be here on YouTube. But Josh, why don't we take us into those charts, shall we? That button let's, doesn't work. Let's either. do it. Let's there we use, go. use your magic keyboard and get it done, Jim. All right. So we like to start every week by looking at inventory. Inventory tells the, tells the story. Um, and we did see an increase uh, week over week, uh, whereas last year, you'll see in a moment that we went down this time last year. We were still trending downward, uh, but we did increase a little bit here, sitting somewhere around 500 or 1,000 homes nationwide. Um, Orange County sitting at 1945, which is an increase of about 40 or so properties from last week. Huntington Beach were an increase of about three properties from last week. So trending in the right direction to add some more inventory. Uh, but at the moment, it's it's pretty um, pretty meek, if, if you will. Uh, not really a lot happening. Still a lot of buyer demand out there. Um, I can tell you about a property that it, it, later in the show here where we put in an offer at $2 million. There were 10 offers on the property just insanity. Um, you know, I, I don't know where it ended up, but we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail. But Josh, as we mentioned a moment ago, weekly change went from 494 to 497. So increased about 3000 homes. The same week last year, we went from 437 to 430. So again, we're trending uh, upward, which is nice. Uh, the peak last year was 569. And our low that we've seen all time was back in 2022, sitting at 240,000 homes nationwide. Now, What we'd like to see is new listings continuing to come to the market because more new listings come to the market. That is what continues to pick up inventory, add to inventory rather. So this past week, we saw just over 51,000 homes come to the market compared to 44,000, almost 45,000 back in 2022 and uh, just shy of 50 or 49,000 back in, I said 2022 a minute ago, I meant 23, back in 2022 sitting at 49,000. So Inventory, new listings, both above the last two years, which again is trending in the right directions. Pending contracts, uh, we actually came down a little bit from the previous week, but still trending above where we were this time last year, which is, again, um, 
you know, due to to buyer demand out there, just not a lot of options, people putting homes under contract. So median price of new contracts actually pulling back a little bit. So this tells me, Josh, if, you know, chances are this this data's a, a little bit old of, of homes going under contract, we could actually see prices of new contracts continuing to come down and you could see that number um, below the last two you know, below 2023, maybe even 2022, depending on what happens over the next couple of weeks. But it'll be something so, to watch. Yeah. Uh, again, remember, we always want to talk about that median price. What does it mean? It means doesn't mean that home prices are coming down because we're seeing in case Shiller and the other data that we're going to go through. Prices are not coming down. Nope. The prices of homes that are actually selling that midpoint is, is working its way down. So because rates are higher, payments are higher for people to be able to afford that have reached the point in their life that I need to buy, they're having to come down in price point. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that unfortunately, as rates continue to increase, or if they continue to increase, that number is going to be affected um, even more. Uh, median home list price uh, actually sitting, what, at 429. Uh, median price of new listings sitting at, was that 419 or so? Um, so both of those numbers essentially up week over week. Um, and again, it's, it's just, you know, we're, we're, we're continuing to see it in the data with Case Schiller, with CoreLogic. Um, this was existing home sales, um, basically just showing you that prices climbed 5.1% from January, 2023 from this, uh, uh, same, same, same time last year, if you will. Um, it's the second consecutive month of year over year price gains sitting at 379,100. So for a lot of markets out there, 379, you're like, what the hell is that? I can't get anything for 379. Understand nationwide prices and what we're looking at there. Uh, Josh, with that percent of properties with price reductions, ticked up just a tad, uh, but still sitting at the low end of what's normal at 30.4%. And then this is Zillow's forecast for regional home prices uh, between 2024 and 2025. So You've got, you know, 4.2% projected appreciation between that period of time. And remember, Jeff, we talk about this. We put this number yep. up here. It's a valid number. They have good data, but it is important to remember why people love mocking this number. When rates hit 8% last October, they were saying home prices are going to drop 1% next year. And then within three months, they're like, home prices are going to go up 2%. And now they're at 4.2%. So two things I thought were important about this chart. This is really a now cast. They are looking at based off what they're seeing right now. They're not forecasting what's going to happen with rates. They're not going to forecast any of that. They're saying... If the current trends continue, this is what we're likely to see. So 4.2, they're going to update this. They update their data more often than anyone else does. But the key thing that I think is important about the way the data is presented here, if you look at that, we've got many markets that are the blue and darker blue, five, six, seven, eight, ten percent And we don't really have anywhere in there on the negative side of the spectrum. All of those gray areas, they're not expecting a whole lot of increase. So again, Zillow is not the gospel. This is good data and it's their analysis of it. But you can look at this and see, hey, am I looking in Iowa? Hey, I don't have anything to worry about. Not gonna be a whole lot of appreciation this year. Am I looking in San Diego? Hey, I better get on my horse because home prices are gonna be up over-, over They the ride horses months. in San Diego? They do, from Tijuana, oh. off, of, off of Calle Revolucion. Oh, wow. That's that's something to watch. Uh, apparently, apparently, if you grew up in Kinston, you didn't spend any 18, 19 year old summer nights in Tijuana. No, just saw that. I just saw that episode of the OC again the other day. One of the best episodes until Marissa Cooper went and you know, OD'd. Then that kind of threw a harsh vibe on the whole thing. <laughs> 
we have gone completely derailed here, guys, and going down really, really fast. Um, typical home value by county according to Zillow Home Price Index. So this chart was interesting. Uh, we kind of looked at this one a little bit earlier, Josh, and um, and and being able to zoom in really specifically to the zip codes and see exactly what's happening in different markets across. We looked at Southern California, but you could literally look at it across the nation if you look had access in, to the data. Look at this in relation. I just want to flash back. Look at it in relation to this. The dark parts here, the most expensive areas are paradoxically the ones that are doing the best or projected to do the best this year. The you know lighter yellow areas here, the, the lower price, more affordable areas, um, not as expected to appreciate as much. So that's not 100% consistent, but you know, if you're out there, the, the whole purpose of these last two charts is just to remind you real estate is local. Don't say, hey, nationally, Zillow says 4.2%. Who cares? We care about what it's gonna be in your market if you're gonna transact. Well, well, go back to that, Josh, because I think it's important to note like why those popular areas are the ones that are appreciating the most. They're the ones with, the most buyer demand. They're the ones experiencing the lack of inventory for the most part, right? Which is which creates that competition in the market, drives prices up versus middle America. Yeah, there might be some competition there, but it's not, it's not, you know, those are the people watching us going, you're absolutely crazy. We have no idea what you're talking about. Homes here are sitting on the market, you know, forever. They're not selling. Well, that's because no one's looking in that market. People are looking in these dense populated areas where housing is a problem. Yep. Um, important and another visual. These visuals are really cool. Look at the dark purple areas. They're almost all along the coast yeah. and all, all of the coastal areas are dark. So if you have some ocean, guess what? We have a limited amount of ocean relative to this giant mass of country. So, and then the other thing that jumps out to me, Jeb, let's look at the other purple areas. What's common about those areas? It's people that took their coastal real estate money and went a little bit inland to beautiful areas of the Western United States and pushed up prices there as well. So interesting data. Jeb, last week or this Tuesday, it went live uh, episode of the podcast talking about seasonality. So if you're going to buy this year, does it matter when you buy? Should you buy in January? Should you wait till the fall? Um, we had uh, a listener reach out and say, hey, we're thinking we're not going to look until September, October, because we don't want to deal with all this. Well, this chart shows you month over month changes in prices all the way back to 1990. So the important part is look down the middle. And I don't mean the middle of the page where you have the red from the, the downturn from 2008, 2009, 2010. The I mean, the yeah, the, the columns. And the dark part is there just exactly what we were talking about in terms of seasonality. March, April, May, June, July, August. That is the heavy months for appreciation. So if Zillow, if the other forecasters are correct that we're going to get three, four, five percent appreciation this year, the reality is the vast majority of that is going to come in that five, six month span. So by the time you get to October, yeah, there's going to be less competition. But if we got four percent appreciation this year, you're likely going to have seen the vast majority of it. And that's how much you're going to pay more for your home. So, again, it's not FOMO. It's not buy before you're ready. It's if you are ready. I don't think it makes sense to wait until later in the year if you've decided that homeownership is the next step for you. This one here is a chart that started making its rounds earlier this week. And the funny thing is it showed up in my inbox from three different sources. Uh, and the final one today, this is real home prices around the globe. So I always want to explain what real is. Real means adjusted for inflation. So take inflation out of the picture. Um, we are acutely aware of affordability and high home prices in the U.S. And the rest of the world says, hold my beer. We're up 123% in real terms since 1975. France is up 190. Great Britain, 290. 
New Zealand 325, and our neighbors to the north, also uh, colloquially known, Jeb, as America's hat, our Canadian friends up over 400% in real terms since the 1970s. So that's not to say, hey, feel better, it's, it's awesome. It's just in looking at it, um, it's better than than many of the other places in the industrialized world. And the other thing that you want to notice from this chart, almost all of that appreciation came about when we went from low interest rates to ultra low interest rates. So that will be something to watch going forward. And we watch it every week. What's what's happening with inflation? What's happening with the Fed? What's happening with economic growth? If that slows and rates moderate, you're, you're likely to see this continue. This one, Jeb, is a really interesting chart. Um, it breaks it out by age groups, under 35, 35 to 44, 45 to 54. I don't care about the old people. They all start merging together. You know, a 50-year-old looks a lot like a 60-year-old, looks a lot like a 70-year-old for the most part. But on the left side, if you see there, primary residence accounts for 43% of the net worth of folks under the age of 35. So you may be saying, who under 35 was able to buy? A lot of people were fortunate enough to be able to do that at the beginning of the pandemic. So this is why we talk about it has to, you don't force this, you don't push it earlier in your life, but for everyone under 44, we're up like 40% of your household net worth is in your home equity. So when it makes sense, don't delay it. Don't force it. Don't push it. Uh, but it, it's an important thing to know. Um, this is one Jeb popped up. I thought it was interesting. Uh, not uh, unexpected when you look at those areas where lots of people live. We also have longer commute times. But the second chart here was more interesting in that it shows the yellow is 2022. The purple was 2019. Almost every major metro around the U.S. has had commute times decrease. So don't know what to make of that other than decreased traffic with more people um, telecommuting, that type of fun stuff. But it was an interesting thing to, to look at. Jeff, have you seen this one? I also saw this one pop up in a couple of different places this week. These are the 40 major metro areas where inventory is up the most year over year. And we have a bunch of portions of Florida. Punta Gorda, Cape Coral, Northport, uh, Sarasota, Bradenton, Naples, all, I believe, on the Gulf Coast. And up 140, 100%, 80%. So big, big increases in inventory. And that is obviously going to have an impact on prices. But the, the commonality they have, I think all of those areas got hit by the hurricane a couple of years ago. And on top of that, they're getting hit really hard by the big increases in uh in insurance, insurance. Yep. you know, most of those folks, you buy a $300,000, $400,000 home, you're looking at about $300 a month for your insurance. So it, it's having an impact on that market. And if that continues and spreads to more and more areas, it can have an impact uh, additional places. Um, we've talked about this many times, Jeb, the data actually just showed up in chart form here this last week. But uh, we saw a 10-year dip down, so meaning how long people stay in their homes during the pandemic, post-pandemic went down to about 12%. But from early 2000s to 2019, we're up at 13.4 years. And the reality is it went down because people were incentivized with really low rates to make a move if they thought they were ever going to make a move. And now I would expect over the coming years, we're going to see those numbers pop up. And this shows a uh, structural decline in the share of the U.S. population moving every year. So the previous one was homeowners, how long they stay in their home. This just shows how much of the population moves, period. Uh, all moves is the green line. The other line is moves within the county. And long-term trend going back there to the, the 80s on the way down. Yeah, we get uh, questions all the time. Well, what, what are these institutional buyers doing? They're, they're, they're causing us problems. They're buying up all the homes. 
This is a look that it, it gives us a, a look into rents because there are most of them are publicly held. They have to disclose. So we talk about we know that rents are decelerating. They're not decreasing. It's just a slower pace of growth. And that has been a key driver of inflation over the last couple of years. If this continues down, um, invitation homes, and I forget what AMH's actual company name is, but it matches really closely with what we're seeing uh, in rents from that perspective. So the final one here, um, I didn't get the chart of the 10 year in here. I, I did it. I just didn't get it into the, the charts, but um, pretty flat week over week. Optimal Blue is reporting 6.926 on the 30 year fixed. Mortgage News Daily reporting 7.15. So somewhere just above or just below 7%. If you're on an FHA uh, or a VA, you're looking mid sixes. They always report a little bit high. You should be able to do six and a quarter to six and a half, depending on your qualifications. There you go. Good stuff. Uh, Mr. Lewis, I uh, want to shift us. There we go. Look at you on top of it. So guys, uh, this is the point where you guys ask questions and we try to answer them. So um, with that, you know, start putting your questions in there. We'll get to them uh, as we as we see fit. Uh, try not to repeat the question because it just it, it makes it more difficult to get through the stuff and uh, and actually answer the ones that have been patient along the way. Uh, Josh mentioned the podcast early in the show. Tuesday, we talked about seasonality in real estate, um, how that impacts you as a buyer, how it might impact you this year. If you're a home buyer looking to buy this year, I would you know check it out. Um, if you find any value, rate it, review it. Uh, thumbs up if you haven't done so. And if you're not a subscriber to the channel, we would appreciate that. And also, if you're here and you're not subscribed, I would appreciate you um, joining the community as well and um, and and allowing us to uh, to you know continue to educate and guide you guys through the process. So, Josh, just you know, we got a really simple question to start with. Uh, you know, from Underdog Apparel, uh, asking what are good VA home loan companies to go to. So. I'll just two cents it and then you can kind of put yours in there as well. Uh, the worst thing you can do as a potential veteran uh, looking to buy a home is go in and type in VA loan or how to get a VA loan, VA mortgage into Google because you're going to get people that are paid, that paid, that are paying to be there rather. Um, and they're four quote unquote four veteran type companies. And these companies overcharge, under deliver. Uh, in many instances. So I would try to stay away from it. Hey, if you talk to them, fantastic. But though, but then go out and talk to a broker, someone else, and compare what you're getting offered because my bet is it's going to be better on the other side. Josh? Absolutely. The the 24,000-pound gorilla, the elephant in the room, whatever you want to call it, all you got to do is Google VA mortgages. They'll have several ads. They'll have several organic results. They are the biggest VA lender in the country. Um, as Jeb said, high rates, high fees. You're talking to a kid in the call center. They have a lot of overlays. So they will tell you this is the VA guideline. It is not. It is their guideline. Um, in the veteran space, there are several other groups, um, credit unions, companies like USAA that have a reputation for helping veterans. If you have an affinity with them, if you already have a relationship with them and you want to talk to them, by all means, do so. They're not terrible. They're not going to treat you poorly. But these are marketing organizations with big call center operations, not professional expert loan officers. So as Jeb said, get uh, an outside opinion of a local mortgage loan originator. Uh, in the VA space, FHA as well, I would absolutely recommend you at least need to talk to one broker. 
you don't have to go with the broker, but in terms of keeping everyone honest, we just looked at the numbers for Mortgage News Daily and Optimal Blue, and I'm telling you, you should be a quarter to three-eighths lower than what they're advertising. That's because both of those are largely pulling from direct lenders that are actually using their government pricing to subsidize and be a little more aggressive on their conventional pricing. So with that, make the call, talk to someone, talk to someone local. And Jeb, you threw the referral link up here, but my team and I, um, soon to be Jeb's team and I, uh, can, can help you in about 20 different states. So if you want a second opinion, you want a first opinion, use that referral link, get connected. There you go. Good stuff, Josh. Uh, and to follow up that, somebody just, you know, you mentioned referral link and somebody commented in the in the comments asking, I went to the link to see if I could get a, re a referral for a realtor about how long would it take to hear back? So depending on when you do it, basically the realtor referrals are a personal referral of somebody that I know personally. Um, and it's a call. I, I typically call that agent before I ever make the referral to just confirm, hey, listen, you're still working with buyers right now. You're still working with sellers, whatever it is, and confirm, hey, you're you you have the ability at the moment to take on a new client. Because the last thing I want to do is refer you to somebody that I know, and then they're just too busy because of whatever, and it takes time. So typically takes you know a day or so for me to make that referral because it is a personal touch. Um, it's not just some system sending you out to someone else to to make it happen. So um, if you did it today, which I haven't looked at my email. Um, I will be in touch with you by tomorrow with that info. So, and, uh, and Jeb, just to close the loop on that, on the mortgage side, you know, eighteen to twenty of those states will will get routed to to my team and the others. It's the reason why it can be a little bit faster is there's just a handful of folks, and it's by state. And Jeb knows for a fact those people that he's referring to you to are actively originating in those states. So it's a little bit more automated on the mortgage side. Yeah, real estate's just a little bit different because there's so many cities. It's you know, states, if you're licensed in California, you're licensed in all of California. If you're looking to buy a house in Orange County or say Riverside, then, you know, I'm not going to be able to help you in Riverside. I mean, I could, but I probably wouldn't be the best fit. I would be able to help you in Orange County. So again, just takes a, you know, a, a little bit longer just because of the personal touch piece of that. Uh, but going along here, Josh, we, we had a comment, um, not really a question, but I do want to touch on it because there's a lot of people out there that again, headlines um, drive uh, advertising dollars. And there are some headlines recently just take, talking about delinquencies being up. Now, this comment says serious delinquencies up sharply month over month. That sounds alarming, Josh. I mean, absolutely. I would say, wow, that sounds crazy. We better get ready until you actually yeah. understand the context and realize that up sharply from nothing is nothing. Um, we we haven't even hit levels uh, uh prior to the pandemic yet. And prior to the pandemic, there were no foreclosures. It was it was an easy market. So it's, again, it's a non-issue. It's it's a hopeful way of thinking. And unfortunately, for those that are hoping, it, it, there's nothing much there at the moment. I, mean, I think, Josh, we looked up foreclosure data here today in Orange County, and there were six. Six. There's 3.3 million people in Orange County. There were six on the market. And, and, and just most under, of those have been on the just, market for a long time. Just under a million housing units, 965,000 single family residences. So something that you could buy theoretically if someone put it on the market. Um, we have had a question that comes up. Um, we just see screen names here. I don't know the person's name, but someone I think asked here on the live last week and then asked again in a comment, hey, I'm seeing in certain markets, including Orange County, 10 to 20% of the available inventory is a pre-foreclosure. Like that doesn't jive with any number whatsoever. So I went into Zillow, I searched Orange County, 
and then I checked the one box to filter by pre-foreclosure, none came up. They have another box that says by owner and other. Check that, 495, 465, I think, come up. That equates to 4.8% of the homes that could be for sale, uh, 0.048, I should say, of the homes that could be for sale here. And we have no idea. That's low relative to the numbers, Jeff. I just looked at the numbers. We're still way below um, historical numbers nationally in terms of delinquencies. Forget foreclosures. Foreclosures are like non-existent, but the delinquencies are, are still low relative to where they have been. But in that, I don't know what Zillow, they, they don't really tell you the data or what they're lumping into that other category, mm -hmm. but they're there. So in Orange County, 465 properties, oh my God, 460 people losing their homes. And you go, it's 0.048% of homes. It's yeah. Like and it's understand it's, it's, it's a, what is a delinquency considered? I think that's really important. It's somebody that's just passed you on, on, on a payment, right? That's a, that's a delinquency. Um, this, so this question here, we're skip Zillow saying serious delinquency. Serious is 90 serious is days. 90 days. Yeah. Serious is 90 days. Uh, but when you see something that says pre foreclosure in, in Zillow or something like that, that doesn't necessarily mean the house is going to foreclose. It just means a notice of default has been filed on that particular property. Um, in most yeah. cases, that means the owners can bring it, can bring it current. They can sell it off market prior to that happening. They can do a private sale. A lot can happen in that time frame. So again, it's, it's one of those things that it looks like, Hey, this is, you know, something that's going to help me when in fact it's it's probably something that is just it you know yeah you might have some but it's it's not going to be anything to to really change the dynamic of the market um let's see here got a question for me josh i asked the question the, the last one confused me i look at it said josh i said i asked a question and now you're asking a question yeah uh, can a struggling city Hemet san us uh, I almost said San Jacinto. San Jacinto, uh, change from rough to a thriving area. Can it? Sure, it can. Um, you know, I I would say take a market like um, Inglewood, for example, right? Uh, Compton, South South Central LA. Back in nineties, early two thousands, those are markets that you wouldn't even consider buying houses in, even if you were trying to rent them out for the most part regentrified things happen and what happens over time is prices go up now you take inglewood for example what happened with inglewood well you got you know the rams going there now you got the clippers going there you've got all of these businesses heading there which again is changing the dynamic of that market and now it's more of a, a, a thriving are we using the word thriving josh when we're talking about inglewood it's a changing market so yes it can happen but these things don't just happen you know, overnight, it's, it takes time. It's, it's one of those things that you need, you need migration of people, you need businesses, you need healthcare, you need jobs, you need a reason to, for people to want to be there. That's what changes markets and wants and, and, and reason for developers to start building and changing the landscape. That's what, that's what has to happen prior to something happening. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Inglewood, um, we all heard once SoFi was announced, hey, this is going to happen. I could not have foreseen. And, and you had the pandemic come in there and ultra low interest rates. It all kind of, it was a perfect storm. I have a client that bought a duplex over there just before at like 415. It's almost 900,000 now, little duplex. Um, you know, you, Jeb, you and I have seen people flip houses over there, buy them for seven, 800 and put them back on the market at one, three, one, four. You're like, wow, no one would have ever thought. Um, you know, Inglewood, you see a lot of really, really nice units over there as well. 
Compton, it blows people's minds. It's still a joke in people who are outside of California. Go, oh, you'd be in the ghetto. You'd be in Compton. Really? I'm sorry. You couldn't afford a house in Compton. Not even close. So yeah. it's, it's definitely an interesting change over the last 10, 15 years. Yes, it is. Um, even over the last couple of years, it's a big change. Uh, so Josh, couple here asking about specific areas. We got, you know, asking what's going to happen in San Diego, what's going to happen in Fort Worth. And the reality is it, Fort Worth, I, I don't, I got a better, you know, idea of what's going to happen in San Diego than Fort Worth because San Diego is is our neighbor here. But, um, you know, I, I don't know the Dallas market well enough to be able to guide you through that process. What I do know is areas like Texas have the opportunity for more construction, not necessarily in Dallas proper per se, but on the outskirts of Dallas. Um, it's a growing metro. You got rooms room to build, uh, which means inventory is probably less of an issue. Whereas San Diego, for example, San Diego, you know, is is a lot like Orange County in, in the fact that it's built out. The closer you get to the coast, the further you go inland, uh, less built out. And uh, that's where, you know, more affordable housing is. But even then, real, you know, I just saw a, a, a recent chart showing the year over year numbers and San Diego is still one of the hottest markets in the United States. So asking what the predictions are, I think you probably see. I think for a lot of markets that have done well, 2023 is kind of the baseline for what 2024 will be. I think if 2023, whatever you saw in 2023, I think that's the lower end of expectations with regards to the number of transactions, with regards to appreciation, with regards to um, you know just overall feel of the market. So that's the baseline. So from there, I think it's at least that, maybe even more transactions, uh, more appreciation, more competition as interest rates come down. But that's just a guess. Jim, uh, let's address the second part there because he also points out he's thinking in terms of buying cash. Um, we talk about this on the show from people who are competing against cash offers. And we say, as a seller, if someone offers cash for my home, I don't care. I don't care. If someone offers me a million dollars worth of mortgage and someone else offers me $950,000 cash, I do not care. I don't need the money in five minutes. I need as much money as possible. So 30 days, 45 days, as long as I'm comfortable with that. So where where does cash help you? Um, it's if there is a multiple bidding situation, everyone's paying the same price. Someone would prefer to have the certainty of a cash offer. If you're going and buying distressed property, I had a client write an offer today on a home in Los Angeles, bitch and house destroyed. It's $500,000. No one's going to lend on it because it should be a million dollar home. It needs $300,000 worth of work. Cash can help you in that situation. If you're going into markets where there's more inventory, then cash can get you a discount when sellers are, are looking around going, I'm happy to get any offer. Um, so I would ask anyone looking at cash, what is your objective with the cash? Are you looking for a yield on the cash? Then look at the market that has the best rents relative to how much cash you're putting into that property. Um, rents less, you know, taxes and insurance because you're paying cash. But those are some in interesting thoughts. Um, I, I have a lot of people that will pop up. I've got cash. What should I do or where should I go? I got cash. I want to allocate it here. There's more to it than just saying hey, I'm a cash buyer. Well, with that, Josh, you know, I, I want to touch on the cash thing uh, because a lot of people believe, hey, I've got cash. It gives me the ability to negotiate better, uh, better terms for me as a potential buyer if I have cash. That means I should be able to offer lower than the asking price because my cash rules. Well, here, you know, I started the show by talking about uh, an offer that we put in last Friday um, here in Orange County. List price was 1.9 million. We came in at a million nine fifty. Uh, there were ten offers on the property. We didn't 
we didn't get the property. Um, and I kind of had an idea of that going into it because I'd already talked to the the listing agent and they told me where we needed to be. My client just wasn't willing to, to do what we needed to do. But nevertheless, she did say that one of the 10 offers that they had received was a cash offer. And that was the least competitive offer out of all that they received. So the cash offer seemed to think like, hey, because I have cash, I should be able to, you know, that that's to my advantage. No, when you have people that are willing to offer more than you, cash, the money is the same at the end of the day. The seller doesn't receive cash. They receive a wire from, from, the, from the escrow company. So it comes in the same form regardless of how it gets there. Now, there can be some advantages to cash, but when you're in a, an environment like we are at the moment where inventory is low, sellers have the control and you've got to still be competitive even with a cash offer. Just thought that would be interesting for those that are cash buyers and, and, and wanting to put that money to work. But Josh, I do want to add to that. Real estate's local, guys, right? This is Orange County. Orange County is an anomaly to some regard in, in home prices, just prices in general, how much money is floating around. You know, you go, you can go to a restaurant where, you know, I had a buddy went to Nobu a couple of weeks ago to sushi, him and his, him and his wife uh, for his birthday. And he texted me the next day and was talking about how good it was. And I said, let me guess how much you spent. And I said, $500. And he said, $750. $750 for two people to go to dinner. And guess what? You think the restaurant was empty? It wasn't empty. It's packed, right? That's, there's, there's, it, again, I say that only saying that I know that we live in an area where there's a lot of money. So if you're in another market, you have to understand the dynamic of your market. Don't just take what we're saying here and say that's happening everywhere because it might not be happening. And I think it's it's very important to note that. Josh, Shane wants to know what your guess is for PCE data tomorrow. I, a lot of the same. I think it's 0.3 month over month is what they're looking at and a drop. So both core and uh, and the headline should both be under 3% tomorrow. Don't think it's going to make much of a difference, Jeb. Going back for the better part of two years now, we've talked about the market loves trading CPI and it loves trading non-farms payroll. The rest of it, you can move the market a little bit. Um, so I would expect the numbers possibly to surprise to the better. But if they come in worse, I think it's kind of already been priced in with the hot CPI report. So I don't know that we have a huge downside risk. I'm not holding my breath for, for something better. And I guess, Jeb, that, that kind of leads me back here. Someone had a, a question here um, on top of that. So what's what's our thoughts on PCE? But I'm not seeing it here. But the question was, what do you expect for the spring buying season? Well, one of the people that you and I follow is, um, what, why am I drawing a blank? Sim Mike Simonson over at Altos Research. Yep. They have a really good view into the data and he does a weekly recap. They're seeing real time what is happening. And it's this whipsaw. Like there was the expectation that rates were not going to go straight line down, but trend down throughout the year. And instead, from December till now, we've seen them pop up. So we had a nice little bump of buyer activity in the first part of January, and now it's a little bit subdued. We don't have a lot of listings, so it's it's the the pricing, the, the competition is still there, but it's because there's very few sellers and very few buyers. So that buyer seller demand. So when I look forward at it, I, I say it, it all comes back to interest rates, which all comes back to affordability. There's not enough inventory in most markets for there to be a decrease in prices. The only way affordability improves is for rates to come down. And that relates back to those inflation numbers. Uh, you know, I, 
I'm still of the belief that they will trend down, as we've said a million times, um, smart people on both sides of it to say, nope, inflation is going to be sticky. And other people say, nope, it's going to go back to just the way it was before the pandemic once all of this works its way through the system. So my expectation, Jeff, I don't know about yours, is is more of the same. We were hoping, thinking maybe, you know, uh, instead of 4 million sales, we get to 4.2, 4.3 million sales, which doesn't sound like a lot, but nationally it's an additional 300,000 sales this year. If rates drop to where people were hoping or expecting, you'd also see probably a 50% increase in refinances from a very low level. So it doesn't make a robust and healthy mortgage market for mortgage professionals like myself, but it's much better, much better than last year. And so far, it's looking like a lot more like more of the same, right? Yeah, no. And and we kind of said that going into the year that, hey, look, it's probably 2023 is going to look a lot like uh, or 2024 is going to look like a lot like 2023 with some minor changes here and there. But overall, pretty similar markets. Um Josh has a question that I don't really understand. So Josh, if you want to elaborate on this, just says limited inventory in the area. I'm interested. Can you explain new builds coming 100 plus single family homes starting at 1.6 million staying that high? I think he's wondering why 100 1.6 million dollar homes wouldn't bring prices down. And I would say, look at the the flip side. I, I, unless we're talking about building out in the middle of the sticks, 100 homes isn't a huge amount of homes. You and put why would that bring prices down? Yeah, if you put 100 $1.6 million homes in the middle of Huntington Beach, they will probably be lines out front and they'll all be under contract at the end of the weekend. So it depends on the market and what else is, is available. And just remember, builders, big national builders are not dumb. They have economists, they have planners. They don't bring homes to market if they think they are going to put downward pressure on the market. If they're building that inventory, it's because they are very confident the market can and will absorb it. Yep, okay. Uh, here's another question along... Um the lines of new construction, just saying if single family homes are in high demand, then why are builders not building more of them? You mentioned builders are building, but not building what people actually want. How is that profitable? So I'm not, what I say is there, it's not that they're building what, what most people don't want. It's they're building for profit, right? So Josh just kind of mentioned that. So if a builder can go into a community, like for example, there's some infill communities here where we are starting prices are like 2 million bucks. That doesn't, help the majority of home buyers here in Huntington Beach where we're located, but that doesn't mean those homes aren't going to sell. They are going to sell and they're probably going to sell at that price or even higher uh, depending on, um, you know, how the, the community gets built out. But, you know, what I say is they're not solving the problem. They're not building what's needed. That's because we, you know, we like to see more entry level housing be built because that's really where the problem is nationwide. I mean, that, that's, you know, but the, 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 the problem is that builders can either build the, the lower price homes and make less profit, or they can build bigger, more expensive homes, you know, add larger square footages, build up smaller lots, exactly what they're doing here in California and charge more money and make more profit, right? They're in the game of making money. They're not in the game of helping uh, first time home buyers, unfortunately. Well, Jeb, um, let, let, yeah. let's use that example. You talked about the infill development where they're building single families. They price those at 2 million. We have an infill development right around the corner from us. Mm -hmm. They were attached two and three story. And those only sold at like 1 a million to 1.3 million, which is a lot of money. But for our market, that's lower price point. And they were able to go a little bit denser there. But I can guarantee you that both of those builders went and said, zoning, what will they allow us to build here? Okay, Constantly. with what we, with what we are allowed to build, how do we maximize our profit? At no point did they say, how can we make more reasonable homes for families? They said, 
what in our spreadsheet, what is the product that we deliver that puts the most profit to our bottom line? So you're saying, how is it profitable? It's profitable because the things that the market needs, that first time home buyers, that families need, entry level, 12, 13, 1400 square foot, three bedroom, two bath, single family home, there's very little profit in that. So when you, Jeb, you've talked about it a million times, you're close to $100,000 in planning permitting before you ever break ground. If in you build California. A four, in California. Yep. You, and it's not all that, it's not all that lower nationwide. But if you look at that and you build a $400,000 house, well, that's 25% that goes towards that. You build a, a $2 million house, that's 5% that goes towards that. Same house, same yeah, house. And, and I've said this before, but I think it's important to, to, to mention again. And I forget where I heard this. I think uh, one of my mentors said this, it, it, that they built more homes in the, in the city of Dallas, Dallas in probably, you know, the outskirts right there, but Dallas than they did in the entire state of California last year. So perspective there, guys, I mean, just shows you where the homes are being built. They're being built in areas where it's less expensive to build, uh, less, you know, more affordable to live, all of those things. It, it, California's got its issues and and new construction is is one of them. Um, just add let, it to the list. Let, let's kind of continue the similar discussion. Shamin says desirable land is scarce everywhere that has land where people actually want to live will continue to get more expensive new builds in faraway exurbs no one cares about don't move the needle there's there's truth to that because there's a cost to being further away not only are those areas desirable just because we talked about the coast earlier in the show not only do we have the the ocean right there but jobs in la orange county san diego so the further you get away from that, if you can't work remotely, the less likely you are to make money. So you're still putting a, a similar percentage away to your money. We have plenty of land. It's just how do we build in areas where people want to live with the services they need and jobs that will pay the bills? Um, it, it's a it's a really hard one. We talked about it in, when we were recording the podcast today. I don't have the answers. Um, the the answers that state governments are putting forward don't seem to be the right answer, but they're saying jam as much multifamily uh, affordable housing as you can everywhere, which I don't think anyone has ever said, you know what I need? I need an affordable apartment or an affordable, dense government mandated apartment. They say, I need uh, an affordable house. And even if that house is attached, sold one to a client or did a loan for someone uh, in Sacramento last year. And it was a tiny lot. It was like an 1800 square foot house on a 3000 two story on like a, a 2,500 square foot lot, but it was detached and it was theirs and they were stoked and happy to get it. So by all means, the times change, things have to change, but it's it's a tough question and a tough answer. And with that, Josh, you mentioned the podcast that we recorded today. That drops next Tuesday. We talk about politics in real estate, how a change in presidency or the same president staying in office might affect real estate. So if you're interested or th have thoughts on, on one way or the other, it's not a political episode by any means. We're not giving opinions on politics. In fact, we're trying to stay away from that. Uh, but it's more of, hey, listen, a lot of people believe X. We're saying, does X matter or does it not matter? And and so if you're interested in that, check out the podcast. It'll drop on Tuesday. It'll be here on YouTube as well. Uh, Josh, we've got, um, let's let's kind of get off the new construction tra train for a moment here and kind of go a different. Stop, stop answering questions with no answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We just don't have it. Um, and, and see uh well we got some, here's a mortgage question do mortgage rates interest tax deductions matter a lot more now that homes are so expensive so josh I would say, are, yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's go back so we talk about home prices up 40 percent 
since pre-pandemic. So at the start of the pandemic, you have a 4% interest rate. You buy the $300,000 home, that's only $12,000 of interest. So when we say that the standard deduction for a couple is more than that, uh, a family buying a home may not have got any bump unless they had other itemized deductions they weren't already declaring. So now let's say it went up 40%. It's a $420,000 house. And now the interest rate is 7%. Or 28,000. So right. it exceeds About, the standard yeah. deduction, but still not by a lot. For a single person, it's a big difference. But where it really starts making a difference is in high cost areas. So I'm buying a $700,000 house with a 7% mortgage, paying $49,000 that first year. And so you're going to get a pretty big interest deduction. Um, I think most people would be happy to have a, a meager interest deduction and a much lower house payment. Uh, but it is what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we got Brian uh, just saying, I guess my area most likely won't see a crash hearing what you guys' homes are starting at. So, Brian, where are you located? Um, I think he said, I think he's in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. He's looking up, he's looking at buying a home. He had some details early. Um, yeah. So, so here's the thing I'll, you know, a lot of the areas that are kind of in that, you know, in the middle America, if you will, um, those areas don't see the appreciation that a lot of areas like, say, California, New York, Florida, Texas, some of these areas see, but they also don't see the downward pressure on prices when things do correct either because they, they're they not the, the bubble type of markets, right? They didn't see this crazy influx of people moving and prices going bananas and all of that. So it's less likely to see, you know, something move, some big move to the downside. So I think it's important to note. I think what you're seeing is probably accurate. Um, but just go, you know, again, pay attention to data, supply, demand, right? If you've got a lot of supply in your market, there's not a lot of people buying them. There could be some downward pressure on pricing versus the other side, a little less inventory. You're finding out you're going to open houses. You're seeing houses. There's competition. There's people everywhere. There's multiple offers. Well, that probably tells me that prices are, are likely stable, maybe even moving, moving upward a little bit. Jim, I had this data from a presentation like 2005-ish that showed prior to that, um, the vast majority of markets nationwide were not cyclical. They literally, one of the mantras prior to the mortgage meltdown in 2008 is we've never seen a year-over-year decrease in home prices nationally. Well, no one cares because I don't get to own one fiftieth of a house in, in each of the 50 states. I have to own where I'm at. So what happened is the population, we talk about red state, blue state, there's more red state areas in the US, but the population is in blue states. Well, similarly, there's more non-cyclical markets around the US than there are cyclical markets, but the population is in those cyclical markets, they fluctuate more. So you are likely to be insulated in Oklahoma for many reasons, because homes, more buildable land, homes able to be built, built at, at lower price point, there was less upward pressure. So you probably saw less of an increase, but it also protects you from a drop if there is a drop coming in the future. On, on the flip side, Jeb, though, any of those areas where you can always build more homes in a downturn, it's tough because you say, wait, I bought this yeah. house for $300,000 and someone will go, well, I don't care. I can buy the lot across the street for $10,000 and build it for two hundred. dollars you do have some interesting dynamics in areas with buildable land. Yeah. And, and I, I, I have to say, I'm, I might stand corrected over here. Josh, you got uh, Brian and uh, Shaman, 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 Shameen, Shameen um, saying that Oklahoma is, is growing and booming and whatever else. So when I, when I say middle America, I'm not just specifically saying Oklahoma, I'm just talking about the, 
the cities in general. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're seeing appreciation, you're seeing growing, you're seeing competition, then yeah, you're you're probably um, in a market that is is continuing to move upward. But again, you know, I would say compared to what you know, Orange County, forty plus percent, or California, you know, whatever the number was prior to the pandemic, you know, markets like that, if there is some big correction, are the markets that 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 get hit the hardest. Um, but it it has to be something that creates supply of homes because at in the at the end of the day. That's what drives markets, right? Supply, demand. You need more supply. So regardless of what market it is, if you see an influx of supply and not buyer demand there, that market has more at risk than a market that doesn't offer that or or have. Jeb, I'm just happy to see that we have penetrated the Oklahoma market. We have two Oklahoma viewers tonight. There we go. We we must be streaming. Uh, they must be pushing us out in, in Oklahoma. Uh, we're, we're, big in, we're big in Texas. So I think the Texans are migrating to Oklahoma. There we go. We're big in Texas. I like, everything's big in Texas. There you go. Even us, Josh. Um, let's see here. We had a question. Jay just asking how the home buying, the spring home site buying season is going to be. Um, you know, a lot like what you're seeing right now. I mean, I think you're going to see some more inventory come to the market. Uh, again, it's all about location. Where are you located in the United States? What are you seeing now? I think it's going to increase a little bit in most markets from here. It, a lot of it has to depend uh, is dependent on what happens with rates. I think if rates don't trend down until later in the year, that spring market could be delayed. Right? It's, I guess it's no longer a spring market, but what typically happens in the spring maybe gets pushed further down the line if rates if we see that that break in rates later in the year. But uh, more of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, I think, is what you're going to continue to see over the next couple of weeks. Uh, unless you see a change in uh, in that in that rate environment, Jeb, I'm yes, getting sir. back to the Oklahoma portion of the show. Kel <laughs> says he only goes to Oklahoma for the casinos. He's from Texas also, but only goes there for the casinos. But Shamin says went from California to Texas to Oklahoma. Keep chasing lower cost of living, but inflation keeps running after me. Um, I can confirm, Shamin, that the inflation is even worse in higher cost areas. So you are getting ahead of it regardless. But I love this. Jeb, what, six months ago, we did an episode uh, of the podcast on moving to a lower cost of living area. I firmly believe that home ownership is that important. If you need to move to a lower cost of living area to be able to own a home, your 65, 75-year-old self will thank you in the future for that. No, good stuff. Josh, I I had no idea we'd been on here 50 minutes. Holy cow. Like time, I honestly went by. <laughs> when you're fast. having fun. When you're oh, having just a, fun. I'm just a blast, guys. Uh, but I am going to ask you guys, if you're listening right now, to hit the thumbs up. Um, if you're not subscribed to the channel, consider doing that. If you listen to us on podcasts and you haven't rated us, reviewed us there. All of that stuff helps. And guys, it just, you know, solidifies why we're doing what we're doing, which is to provide education, take times out of being with our families at this time of night um, and, you know, to be here with you guys and try to provide some, some, you know, some education uh, that will actually help you. Um, you know, not like the stuff you learn in school, you know, cause you didn't use 90% of that. <laughs> did you really boring, need to boring. know calculus? You know, most of you guys probably not. I you did need as a computer science major. At some point we had to do that. But most people, you're never going to use the majority of what you learn. Now, now that I'm out of that, I don't need anything, you know? Jeb, so, you, you'll like this. This is the real life advice. Yes. The first college that I started at, uh, they did not have business calculus. They only had calculus one and two. So I had to take two semesters of calculus 
before realizing if I had just waited till the next year, I could have taken business calculus, which was one semester and way easier. Calculus was my nemesis. That was the only non-A I got in four years of college. Well, I got a lot of non-A's, Josh, but I will tell you, um, the, you know, we, sorry, uh, we, I had to take some math classes. We're getting off the, the subject here, guys. We'll go a little bit longer. Uh, but I had to take a proofing class to proof why, like one plus one equals two. It's all theory. It is the craziest stuff in the world. Like, dude, it's like, where did this stuff even come from? Why are we having this conversation? Um, we got to differential equations and Jeb said, I'm done. Like, I don't need to know any more math. I'm, I'm out. No, so that, that class that I got to see in Jeb, we had an exam. That was Ooh, a, a C. You said less than an A. Now we're, we're finding out it's oh, really it was a C. A. And it was, it was by, it was by the skin of my teeth. See too. I think the, the professor knew he goes, you're going to stop taking math after this. I promise I'll never do this again. <laughs> that last test was three hours and there was two questions and it was like eight pages. I'm oh, like, yeah, that's I, I'm done. I'm yeah, done. It's I'm dumb. Done that's dumb. That's all dumb. Uh, so why we were, we got off on the tangent is this education you can actually use that. That's all that we were getting at. Um, let's see, Josh, uh, Jeb, there's one I want to get to here. I just clicked on this one. So we're going to do it real quick. Uh, I've applied with three direct lenders and one mortgage broker. And the broker is the only one that has charged me a fee. $70. Is that normal? Should I run to the hills? This was the question that I wanted to get to. Um, Historically, it has not been normal, but it is going to become the norm. I look back and literally for a single borrower less than 24 months ago, the end of 2022, we were paying $30 for a credit report. That credit report now is $105. So when you look and we say more people, uh, my phone doesn't not ring right now. Less of those people qualify and those that qualify, less of them decide that they're willing to step into the market right now. So when you look at that, it used to be maybe I pull three or four $30 credit reports to close a loan, $120, $150. It's a cost of doing business, right? Well, the $105 now, and if we pull six or seven of them, we're now talking seven, eight, $900 per closed loan. So we can either charge it up front or it's going to have to fit into the margins later on somewhere down the line. So it's going to get paid one way or the other. And what I would say in this situation, those three direct lenders probably have much higher margins and have made a business decision that they will eat that cost. Whereas the broker is saying, hey, I operate on narrow margins. I'm going to get you better terms, but I need everyone that comes in and asks to get pre-approved to share in that that small burden. So I would never pay an application fee. There's, there's, there's no charge. There's no real charge there. Credit report is an actual fee. We haven't made that decision yet. We have not gone that direction. Um, If we do see an influx of inquiries for the California dream for all, that we know that only one in five of the people that even are qualified will get selected in that lottery. And most that don't won't buy a home without that program, we're probably going to have to charge that. Last year, we had 32 applications. We had one person get in. If I have that situation, $3,200 of credit reports for one buyer that got in on the program and one that didn't actually move on to buy a home, we just, the numbers don't add up. So it's not normal. It's becoming the norm. And it's not something that would tell you to run for the hills. It's just saying you probably have a broker that's operating on fairly narrow margins. So do what you were doing, compare the numbers and see who has the best terms for you. And on top of that, who you're most comfortable with and feel has the most expertise. Well, Josh, along those same lines, there was someone that uh, asked a question earlier asking about the dream for all. Is there any updates on it? So if you're in California, this is a program that essentially gives you up to 15% of the down payment. Was it up to 150,000? Is that what it was? Or is it less this year? 20% 20 up to 150,000. Oh, 20% up to 150,000. So um, 
it's a lottery. It's it's free money. If you qualify, if you should take it. Like there's no reason you shouldn't try it if you can qualify for it. Uh, but with that, Josh, uh, is there any updates? Um, not really updates other than the timing. So right now we have the guidelines. We know what it is. They haven't set an interest rate, but we do have the guidelines and we have a ballpark idea of the timeline. So the most important thing is you have to get pre-approved by a Cal HFA approved lender. We can do that for you. Then with that, you have to go to uh, and apply to Cal HFA. And what they're going to do is they're going to vet those and determine, are you a first time home buyer? Are you a California resident? Is Are you a first generation? homeowner. So I don't know how they're going to vet that, but they swear they are. Once they vet everyone, those that pass go into a lottery and uh, 1,800 to 2,000 lucky people will get a voucher and they'll have 90 days to go out and buy a house, um, get a house under contract, which is way, way better. Last year, I told you we got 30 people approved with 30 applications, about 25 people got approved for it. And it was a race. Who could, who could get a home under contract the fastest? And there's all sorts of problems with that, including some people feeling like, hey, this isn't the right house, but if I don't put it under contract this weekend or pay this price, then I'm never going to get this home and I have to do it. So from that perspective, it's an improvement, but it's definitely very different. And Jeb, if I could throw out a very self-serving comment, I made a very detailed video on this, walking through the tool that we have that will determine eligibility, show you what it looks like, what repayment looks like, and all the steps of going through it. And we'll be releasing that on my YouTube channel tomorrow uh, in the afternoon. And Jeb, that may be the first non-live stream video in almost a year on my channel. There you go. So we will uh, we'll, we'll link to it somewhere. We'll uh, should have put the link in here. Well, we'll link to it next be- week if, if, it, if you haven't been out there. But go to Josh's channel if you haven't done so. Check it out. Um, Josh, there's also, if you want to see if you, you're eligible, I put a link on the, on the screen here that you can check out. Um, you know, it's basically a quick questionnaire to find out if you even are a candidate for it. And if you are, then kind of follow the steps there and, um, and, uh, and see, see if you can, um, get in the mix, see if you can win the lottery, if you will. Uh, the but, coolest thing about the tool, Jeb, is that it shows you, hey, if I buy a home at this price point, you can put in what you think home price appreciation will be and how long you're likely to own, and it will calculate for you exactly what the repayment is. Most people, it's hard for them to grasp what it is. What do you mean? How do I pay? Is this a good deal? When you see it, you'll go, ah, that's a pretty damn good deal. There you go. Uh, dear SX, uh, do you see wages going up to help with home inflation? So Josh... Uh, what what have we seen over the last couple of years? Three, four percent wage so appreciation. Wage, wage growth. growth has, for a very brief period when inflation spiked, wage growth was negative in real terms. But through the pandemic, it has been positive in real terms, meaning wage growth has gone up above and beyond inflation. And yes, that does help. But it hasn't been such a divergence that it's so far above appreciation. And when you factor in the massive home price appreciation that vastly exceeded the general level of inflation during the pandemic, it will help. It absolutely will help. There's only three things that can make affordability better, right? It's lower home prices, which we've gone through due to low inventory. Don't think that's going to happen. Lower interest rates, which we think it's going to happen, but probably not as much as most people want or as fast. And the last one is higher wages. So higher wages will absolutely help, but we don't have a magic bullet. Like wages, I think you saw the numbers that were circulating a month or two ago, Jeb, like wages have to go up 80% for us to get back to affordability to what is normal. Home prices have to drop 45 or 50%. Um, So if you take any one of those three things, interest rates, wages, or uh, home prices, they have to drop an absurd number, which none of them is realistic. It's going to be a combination of all of those three things 
over time bringing affordability back to what uh, they have historically looked like. And they'll, they'll never be as low as they were historically, but they will normalize and, and sort of revert to that mean. Uh, Josue. 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 I, remember, I remember we had that one. Yeah. Uh, is USA direct loan a good idea, Josh? So USDA direct, we've already talked about this a million times. You just did a video on it. I am not a USDA expert. It is not a complex program. It is not difficult. Um, we've got income limits and is uh, the property in an eligible area. USDA direct, Jeb, is a little subset offshoot of USDA. And as its name suggests, I believe you get it directly from the USDA. I have zero knowledge on this one. All right. Good stuff, Josh. Um, select yourself down there in the all button um and and drop your channel in there so people can can grab it if you know it or type it out do you actually know what the uh, the I'll handle is in here yeah there you I'll go um let's see we're almost at six o'clock but we'll answer a couple more here kind of keep things moving along while you're doing that hit the thumbs up subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so um, Ja says tips for representing myself for buying a new construction in a planned unit development. Um, I would say again, you know, buying new construction, it's not a reason to go directly to the builder. There's no incentive most of the time for you to go directly to a builder because they're willing to pay most of the time an agent to represent you. Um, I would say it's in your best interest to have somebody uh, that understands new construct new construction that's familiar with your market that can guide you through the process of the contract and kind of still doing the things you need to do those are the real tips um, don't get caught up in the idea that you don't need to have a home inspection just because it's a new construction i think i think it's still in my opinion it's still worth time i did it when i bought new construction i would i would recommend you do it uh, because there are things there are warranties and stuff with the builder but the, at, the, at the end of the day the last thing you want to do is get into a home and figure out all these little things don't work or that there's touch-ups or whatever, or whatever, you know, just miscellaneous things that need to happen. And then you've got to figure out how to get them done. It's better off to have a list, a punch list of things that need to be addressed coming from the inspector, give it to them so that it's done. You're closing, you're good to go. Um, outside of that, not really a lot of tips. Uh, again, find an agent that's familiar with it and let them guide you through the process. If you need one, there's a link scrolling at the bottom of the screen and we can guide you through that. Um, Josh, let's see here. Hold on. Sh Shameen has a, a follow-up here on the, the topic of, of the credit reports and payments. Says, these lenders should be eating costs right now. Qualified and willing buyers and low supply of these interest rate loan officers are not hitting their quotas right now. The second and the third part are 100% correct. But um, something I learned in college, I thought I was a smart man and I had played dominoes before. But in the back of the bus uh, on the road, I was taught the important lesson that all points ain't good points. So just meaning that all loans are not good. If your margins are too narrow and you're losing money, which I was going to throw the chart in and I thought eh, everyone will be bored by this. Um, the big public lenders uh, have reported and they're losing money on every loan that they do. So losing more money, eating more fees. Yeah, you have volume, but it, it's just a quicker race to the end. So from that perspective, what I would say, Shamin, if you're working with someone that you think is just a service provider and that's all they're capable of doing and it's who has the lowest cost and who can eat the most, 
that would be the way to look at it. I would say this is an important financial decision and you need a financial advisor on your side. So rather than dealing with a kid in the call center, any of that, find, find a professional that you feel uh, is a partner and that will be with you for all of the loans you're going to do through your ownership and investing career. Good stuff. Two good questions here, Josh. One, uh, Sheila's asking, uh, is a hard poll done to apply for the Dream for All program? Is it worth... Uh, is it worth it even though there seems a possibility you won't get picked? So Josh, just kind of talk about it. I mean, let's do it quickly because we're towards the end of the show here, but talk about a hard poll, dream for all, all of that. Your start. your pre-approval letter that is coming from the Cal HFA approved lender says they've done their due diligence, which includes a hard poll. So to give you that for you to apply, yes, they have to do a hard poll. Hard polls are way overrated in terms of negative impact. I would not worry about it, especially if you have good to great credit. Um, is it worth it? Even though there's a possibility you won't get picked. There's not a possibility. There's a probability you won't get picked. They're assuming that 80% of the people will get rejected. But if you had a one in five chance to get something that's super awesome, there is the only risk or the only downside is you're going to take 60 days from now, 90 days from now to figure out whether you, you win that lottery. The delay is the only downside. All right. Next question. Uh, Mona is asking now, I am listing my house in a couple of weeks and all the other homes in my area seem to be priced around 300, uh, $300 per square foot. We're probably going to be at 270 to 280. Is that a good strategy? Here's the thing. As a listing agent, I never look at price per square foot ever um, in determining the value of a home. I try to find comparable properties that are, you know, similar size, similar square foot, similar upgrades, all of that. Now, what happens is when you start looking at prices like that and you come up with your price, the price per square foot typically it, it seems to be pretty average for, for what's selling around there. That said, a time some of these you can have anomalies for example you know in the neighborhood that i live in some of the homes sell for $1000 a square foot $1100 a square foot where the normal home in my neighborhood sells for maybe 700 a square foot why the big difference well they're single level homes near the beach with garages and community amenities and all of these things they're in a great area so if you were looking at price per square foot only and you had one of these unique type properties, a single level where everything is this two story and you price it below, you know, what else is selling, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice by looking at the, the price per square foot. So rather than that, try to find comparable homes and price it according to that. But I'll go a step further and say, assuming you're doing what we're talking about here and pricing it based on comparables, is it worth it to be under that uh, average number? It could benefit you um, depending on, you know, how your property compares to those others that were at the higher price per square foot. Are they nicer? Are they in better locations? Are they, are they similar? Are, are you in a better location? So all of that needs to be factored in when deciding it. Don't just look at price per square foot. And that's literally anybody listening to the show, not only the people selling it, don't just go out and, and compare price per square foot on homes because you could end up overpaying for a property and think that, Hey, it's okay because you know, all the other homes are, are this, no, they're, you got to set them apart. So anyway, uh, Josh, one last question before we exit this evening. What is it? Uh, well, how about a comment? Dixie, Dixieland oh, Production Company has a great comment. Just doing my part by commenting to help you get more shares. Good stuff, guys. We appreciate it. We appreciate the help. No. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, again, sharing, liking. Um, I'll ask one more time, if you don't mind, and hitting the thumbs up, subscribing to the channel if you haven't done so already. You guys help me hit 100,000 subscribers. 
And for that, I am very grateful. I actually got the email for the plaque. So it'll be here in a couple of weeks. Um, we'll, we'll bring it on the show. And then I've got to take it home and give it to my kids. Um, because I promise. They're going to be out in the yard playing baseball probably, with it at home plate. And yeah, all sorts probably of like, stuff. you know, writing like graffiti on it. But it's okay. Um, anyway, guys, we appreciate you being here. We'll be back next Wednesday with another live episode. Tuesday, the podcast drops. Check out that channel if you haven't done so already. Josh's YouTube channel is in the comments above. Um, again, we appreciate you guys. We, uh, we appreciate the support. We'll see you next week. Adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to the educated home buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at the educated slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.